electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Brian Kelly, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, United Airlines flying high, the stock taking off after earnings. The conference call is underway right now. And the one and only Phil LeBeau is here manning the red phone. He traveled all the way from Chicago just to have that red earnings phone in his hand. He'll be giving us instant reaction from that call later this hour. And later on, crypto in limbo. Bitcoin City in purgatory after its month of hell. But you still don't know what's going on. Don't worry. Brian Kelly is back. He's here to break it down and give you the three golden rules for crypto trading. But first, we start off with a big breakout in two groups of stocks this year. And just like the Karate Kid, they're simply the best around. Big tech and big biotech both surging to kick off the year. The QQQ, which counts the FANG stocks among its top holdings, up about 9% in 2018. And the IBB, the largest biotech ETF, up about 10% this year. So when it comes to hunting for growth in a raging bull market, what is the best bet, tech or biotech? Dan. Well, right now, you know, obviously, you know, on a day like today, when you see Netflix, which is obviously a name that a lot of investors keep a close eye on as as they think about tech, up new all-time highs, up 10%, that sort of thing. We've seen Amazon, Google get out of the gates, just go berserk, parabolic, before they've even reported earnings. One sector that's really interesting, or more interesting to me, could be biotech. We've been talking about these two big deals that we've seen already. When I think about the IBB, it just made new 52-week highs today. But you know what? It's still down 10% from its 2015 um, all-time or 2015 all-time highs. Three of the biggest holdings in the IBB, Celgene, Biogen, and Gilead, are all still considerably from those highs. These are going to be acquirers. They have been acquirers. And to me, the valuations are really interesting on these. If we're going to continue to make new highs every day in the market, the IBB looks like a pretty decent bet to get back to those prior highs, um, up about 10% well, from and, current and levels. Well, the IBB, if you look at this chart going back two years, but certainly for the last year and a half, this has been one of the steadiest uh, kind of slow and steady wins the race. You've had earnings. You've had a valuation argument. You've obviously had either macro, regulatory. Um, you know, there are risks in every one of these names. But, but this has arguably been one of the safest places to be investing for the last 18 months. You can also make an argument, as Dan pointed out, first of all, the top four or five names in the IBB make up 37 percent. If you look at the XBI, very, very different. You know, you've got four or five names that make up uh, the top five names make up six or seven percent. Very different companies, very different balance sheets, very different cash positions. IBB, I think is a very defensive play here, and I think we've proven that. Well, and that's, that's yeah. the point, right? XBI, which is kind of the smaller biotechs, those are the ones that are going to get bought out. So it's a higher-risk trade. To me, I think it has higher reward. That doesn't mean that IBB isn't a great trade. I get it. Looks like it's going to get back to new highs. But XBI is filled with those ones that everybody in the bigger IBB are going to buy. So for me, I'd rather play that momentum and play that takeover game. I mean, just yesterday, we had $20 billion worth of deals in yeah. this one sector. And a lot of people say that there is more to come with all this cash. Celgene. Some are saying that Celgene's not going to be done even after uh, doing the purchase it did yesterday. That may be. I mean, that, that was a huge amount of yeah. activity. And I think it's been pent up for a while. We've been waiting to see some big deals for a while. Maybe that continues. For me, just talking my book, I have, I'm, I have technology for Google, for Alphabet, Facebook, 
To me, I'd much rather own those Why? businesses because it's a different kind of, well, if you're looking for takeover, if you're looking for consolidation as a play, to me, that's much riskier than owning an extraordinary cash flow business that every day just rings the register no matter what. They always said, I cannot stand the uncertainty of waking up with some failed phase three trial and, you know, just getting absolutely blown out of the water. These are extraordinary businesses. We haven't even heard yet from Alphabet. I think they report next uh, Thursday, maybe. What are they going to do? What are they going to do with this cash pile that they have? Mm -hmm. I don't think they're getting a lot of credit for it. I mean, everyone right. knows it's there. That's no secret. But this is an extraordinary business. To me, it's, it's my biggest position by a lot. I'd much rather own it than XBI or IBB. Well, I, I agree with, with Google because, again, so we're at this place in markets where, you know, you, you have to at least feel pretty good about the valuation and the multiple and a great company. There's a lot of great companies that are executing in an environment where there's a lot of tailwinds. But buying a company that's not expensive to itself on a five, two, one-year basis, you name it, is very interesting. So I think Google is very important. I think, you know, the name I own in the, in the biotech space is Gilead. What I like about Gilead is, yes, um, they've made an acquisition. Yes. I think it was a, a catalyst for the company. What they're doing in CAR-T, what they're doing in the cancer space is very important because the HCV business, the HIV business are, have been ones where people question whether they're going to stay as profitable or they're going to be a victim of their own success. HCV is stabilizing. I, I just sense that with the top four biotech stocks, there's a lot of bad news in the stock. The valuations are largely very good. So why not own the whole thing? Um, what would concern me is later on in 2018, when the elections or the midterm elections come into play, and the issue of drug pricing could come to the fore once again, as we saw in yeah, 2015. I think it's probably easier to make a case that um, that the government coming after these tech monopolies is going to be a much more, uh, you know, thing that, that is a focus. In, yes, I, I think the regulatory risk is far bigger in Amazon, Google, Facebook, that sort of thing. When you think of the monopolies they have and the power they have, you talk about these new lower tax rates, these cash hordes, the, you know, these are real billionaires running these companies. And they're you know, when you think about largely, right? I mean, you know, whatever you want to call this, I mean, we're at a place where a lot of these companies have been oppositional to the White House. They, yeah. they certainly have, I, I think, a... A, a sense of, of balancing where they need to protect people's identities, their information, their data. Um, these are companies that operate around the world, and, and I think they are the ones with bigger targets on their backs, for sure. What do you think? Peter? I mean, second half of 2018 is like a lifetime in this environment, right? <laughs> well, that's we Bitcoin time. Well, Bitcoin <laughs> time, that's like forever. But, it, but in this market time, and, uh, you know, to worry about the regulatory things in the second half of the year with the momentum that the biotechs have now, I think they just blow it off. Not that it's a, not a concern. I just think in this environment for the next, let's call it, quarter or so, you have this momentum that everybody's going to be playing. Hey, we're getting these takeovers. Biotech's hot. And they're going to blow off any but, concern about a regulatory yeah, issue. Well, and we blow off is the term. Are we going to have this just blow off period right now? You know, Netflix is up thirty percent of the year. Amazon's already I mean, up sixteen. Are we going to have? Uh, well, we got uh, it. Well, I, well I mean, what I'm saying is, but it's it. pretty scary right now. It's the best January in thirty years. I mean, when I say scary, it's not scary if you're long, you're happy. But how how much longer can this go? And when you look at the concentration of these top five tech names, we're analyzing know, at one hundred and thirty-five percent. Oh, really? I mean, that's it? it's, it's that's like Bitcoin that's scary. Stuff. Yeah. That's like and, a month And, and we're not supposed to be there at this stage of this rally. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of good news. People are saying analysts have not been able to price. And as companies start to report, yeah. we're starting to get more clarity. We probably have only upgraded about four and a half percent on a tax deal that in aggregate is probably increasing EPS probably 10 to 15. All right. So let's bottom line this. Would you rather here? OK. Tech or biotech? Let's get the clear answer, Tim. Uh, I think on valuation, biotech to me looks more interesting based upon the track record of the last 16 months. I think people have been cautious and confident. Karen. Would you rather? I mean, my book, tech. I wouldn't short biotech, but tech. 
Does biotech interest you at this point? Yeah, I mean, I do think there's some animal spirits. Deals are now in the works. That gets bankers salivating, right? And then so you could see more deals on the heels of that. That wouldn't shock me at all. BK. Oh, biotech, absolutely. Even, even though it's had a bit of a run, XBI, that's the smaller cap one I talked about, I'd much rather have that. Damn. Yeah, and I just like the IBB. I think the XBI making a new all-time high confirms what I think is going to happen in the IBB over the next few weeks. Did you call this one of the best charts in the market? I, it, it's a really constructive chart. I mean, listen, I don't like charts that look like Amazon when they go like this, straight up. You know what I mean? So it's already <laughs> up to Why, why, why is it one of the most constructive charts? Explain that. I'm not I'm Because not like you said, rate. it's been a nice stair step. And now all of a sudden, it seems that some of the headwinds that we thought were in the space have moved away. Now we're seeing this M&A, which we know is the sort of thing that benefits the acquirers, not just the acquirers. Melzer, what about that chart do you like? I said it's very constructive. It's been making a series of higher lows and higher highs, like your stair step. That's the term that, I, that you okay. use. No, that's fair. That's and, fair. and it looks to me that there is an air pocket back to the prior highs from mid-2000. This is like a go chart yourself right here within this would <laughs> yeah. you rather. Wasn't, yeah. it, wasn't it your triangle yeah. tell you. a couple years we ago? We have told no, somebody to go the chart themselves. Oh, oh, so so frankly, sometimes life. people need it around here. <laughs> Moving okay, on. So where does the world's largest asset manager see growth? Let's ask... Uh, here now is Terry Simpson, BlackRock's multi-asset investment strategist. Terry, good to see you, as always. Good to see you guys. Uh, what's the best bet for growth at this point? So it's interesting. I mean, we're obviously having this synchronous global growth story right now. A lot of countries across the world are actually experiencing above-average trend global growth, and we're pretty positive on that story. And obviously, as an, as an investor, you always want to ask yourself, okay, is this priced in, right? What's the number one question we always get when we come on these shows? Kind of, is it priced into the markets? I tell you, when we step back and we look at it versus what the economics, the fundamentals are giving us versus what the markets are giving us, there's still reason to be positive to have risk assets in your portfolio. So that's what we're still tilting towards, particularly equities, relative to bonds. We still think there's opportunities there. So sector-wise, that means what? Sector-wise, yeah. So we still like financials. We still like technology. I tell you, technology, as you guys are just talking about, it's still one of those love sectors, but it's because you're getting revenue growth, you're getting EPS growth. But the financials are interesting because it's still an underweight, I would say, in a lot of portfolios. So there's some opportunity there for, I think, investors looking for still for some bargains. So we've seen oil go up quite a bit. We've seen commodities rally, the reflation trade. Obviously, now rates are going up. What, at what point do you start to get concerned and say, you know what, that is going to be rates, let's call it 3% on the 10-year. Where do you stand on that? Do you, is that a concern for you on this whole market? <laughs> so it's interesting. I feel like these are like the good times. Where we're always looking for like kind of what's the bearish catalyst here. So we're, we've been debating this a lot at BlackRock over the last couple of weeks or so, maybe even months you can extend it out. You know, it depends. If you're looking at higher rates, you have to ask yourselves, okay, is it a reflection of better growth prospects? If you're looking at better manufacturing data, even better uh, non-manufacturing data as well, if that's the case, that could be very positive. And in that context, we come back to that theme we talked about for uh, three, four years ago, the great rotation, because we still see a lot of money flowing into bonds. If you have higher interest rates, that's going to spook the bond investors. What's the alternative to get, go get returns? equity market. So it's something to think about there just if there's if it's not that dramatic. So when you talk about those places to be, do you expect higher earnings or do you expect a multiple change? So good question. So we're trying to adjust our clients' expectation for this year. Last year was such a good year for EPS growth. You had double digit earnings EPS growth across many of the global equity regions. We still think you get decent EPS growth this year. Probably less so on a multiple expansion, but the better opportunities we think this year still is emerging markets, despite we had the 34% run up last year, because that's where we think we get re-rating or multiple expansion. Less so a little bit in the developed markets, though. So if I had a fresh dollar today, 
Would you put it in emerging markets or would you put it in some of the growth sectors that you mentioned, financials, technology, et cetera? Yeah, we still like emerging markets. And again, we get a lot of pushback on this because of performance of last year. But one of the things we've been trying to look at this from an economic growth standpoint is that we know there's a sensitivity of emerging markets to develop market growth. Where is a lot of the global growth happening today? Develop markets, right? So, and what we found in our research is actually that sensitivity, or that beta, actually increases as developed markets expansions get longer or stronger. So that's what we're actually still banking on, Ian, from the growth perspective. But even from a fund flow perspective, I know Karen always likes to ask me this, is that we still see a lot of people putting money in, but it's not, it hasn't come back to where it was in the last five or seven years or so. All right. Terry, good to see you. Thank you. Good Terry to see you guys. BlackRock. Tim? What did you do today? Well, first of all, Terry and, and BlackRock have been talking about this for a long time. The global markets have outperformed. They've continued to outperform. Japan's been the best developed market in the world. Emerging markets are up 65 versus the S&P's 5. You know, it's nothing, nothing to, about the S&P you should besmirch. But I, I would just say, if you look at the growth that's coming from emerging, what these guys are talking about is a weaker dollar is actually a huge benefit to these places. Southeast Asia, Philippines, Vietnam, you can play these, place, you can play these places via ETFs are on fire. Um, but A shares are up nine and a half percent. When China is chugging like this, emerging markets are going to outperform. Yes, they've outperformed over the last three weeks, but they've underperformed by 40 percent in the last five years. What did you do today, Beeks? Well, I, I was looking at the dollar for exactly this reason. And, and actually, if you look at what Terry is saying, where you where is this global growth, what that's going to impact, it actually could impact Karen's tech sector, right? So you have a tailwind from a lower dollar. I have global growth, emerging markets. So this is now your sector, by the way. Yeah, it is yeah. your this sector. Is your you own it. You're lucky you're It really exactly. is. You are tech. not a bad one, though. It's not a bad one to own. Karen, what did you do today? I didn't do a lot today. I mean, I do like EEM. I do want exposure there. This, this rally's great here, but maybe we're nearer the end than the beginning. That's, I don't know, that would seem somewhat obvious because their rally started much more recently. So if I had to put a fresh, your fresh dollar mm -hmm. to work, <laughs> It would be in Tim's EM. In t yes. And that dollar's down 10% year over year. It's down 10% yeah. on the yeah. last year. All right. Dan, same question so to you. So remember last week I got really annoyed. There was an analyst who put wait, like wait. a... No, you didn't. Be more specific. Oh, right. that I, was like specifically, an analyst put a price target on Texas Instruments. Oh, that's what oh, you're talking about. I thought you were talking about something completely ah, no, no, yeah. different. I, 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 I was about <laughs> ready to put my body on. Do you remember like in two days, it, like the stock went immediately to its price target? Yeah. Like the yeah, new yeah. price. All right. So, so here it is. You know, Texan reports. Maybe we're going to hit it late in the show. <laughs> so now it's down like eight points today after earnings. You know what I mean? So to me, like I think the SMH, I know this is one I've been trading around. I kind of pulled a ripcord on the short a couple weeks ago. I laid a little out today. I think it's gotten a little froth. How do you feel about Bitcoin? Just kidding. I actually, you know, we'll save that for another show. Well, we'll just sit another block. I love when Dan says, remember last week when I got really pissed yeah, off at an analyst and we were like, what? Wait, 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 which one are you talking about? A block, B block, which day? You know Monday, what? Tuesday, yeah, Wednesday? All right, coming up. Check out where we stand with United. The stock taking a turn and sinking after hours. Phil LeBeau is monitoring that call on the red phone right here in studio. He'll tell us what the CEO is saying that sent the stock lower. That's next. Plus, Bitcoin is stuck in crypto purgatory, but even as the biggest coins look vulnerable, Brian Kelly has the three golden rules for investing in the space. You cannot miss that. And later, a record number of stocks at record highs to kick off the year. So how do you know when it's safe that a stock has just hit a new high? We're going to break it down. Much more Fast Money right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on United Airlines. Phil Lebeau is monitoring the conference call from the red phone here. The stock was higher, but now it's sharply lower. So, Phil, what happened? Uh, this is a cost story, Melissa. And the, uh, the cost stories that they're outlining right now in the midst of this analyst call are, uh, are, are substantial. And it's a capacity story. If you want to grow revenue, ultimately, you've got to add seats. To add seats, you add aircraft, you drive up costs. And so what uh, we're looking at for United Airlines, think about this. They are looking at their cost per available seat mile to be flat to up 1% in 2018. But then when you look at their available seat mile growth over the next three years, up 4 to 6% 2018, 2019, 2020. Essentially, they're going to be growing a lot of their domestic capacity. They say this is the only way that they're going to be able to make Houston, Denver, and their main hub in Chicago more competitive in terms of driving higher profit from those smaller markets across the United States. They need to do that in order to catch up with Delta and American. They have just outlined how they've fallen behind Delta and American over the last six or seven years by pulling back in many of these large hubs, especially with domestic capacity. So as a result, they're outlining how they plan to grow future profits and future profit margins by expanding capacity in the United States. Sounds good on paper, but whenever you have investors, Melissa, hearing capacity growth of 4 to 6% per year over the next three years, that spooks investors. Don't forget, we're going to be talking with Oscar Munoz exclusively tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street about this new plan to catch up with both Delta and America in terms of profit margins because, Melissa, they're about 10 points behind. You know, yeah. Delta was their profit margin about 17% in the fourth quarter. It was 6.7% in the fourth quarter for United. They really need to do something to address that. Tim's got a question. Hey, hey, Phil, do you think this clears the deck for 2019? You got the sense that they had something they needed to get off their chest, and they, yes. they clearly have done that today. Yes, absolutely they have done that. And I think they're willing to take the hit right now on the belief that you have a strong economy, you've got yeah. strong demand out there, and they truly believe that you have to be either number one or number two, not just in your hubs, but in other markets around the country. They use Kansas City as an example. And they just went down the list in terms of the four key areas where you want to compare airlines. Hub scale, connectivity, in other words, where else do the, the uh, hubs connect to? Revenue quality, another the share of traffic from small markets. And asset efficiency, how well are you using your aircraft and your assets? They're number three, number three, number three, and number four. They need to do something to get in the game. And there's no doubt that when it comes to execution, Delta is miles ahead of them, especially when you look at inner United States. Phil, let me ask you, do you think the discipline of the industry is now in question? Yes, because anytime you see this much capacity growth, it raises the question, not only what will the other big players do, Delta and America and Southwest, but what happens with the smaller discount carriers? They're going to fight like heck to protect those little pockets of strength that they have around the country. And so I think the real concern among investors is, does this spark a capacity war? And we've seen this in the past. Here, you know what happens when there's a capacity war. Nobody wins because the costs go up. Airfares may stay contained or lower, which obviously hurts uh, passenger revenue per available seat mile. So we're seeing the concern reflected in the shares across the board in the airline stocks in the after-hour session, Phil. Um, do you think, I mean, based on what we've heard already from other airlines, namely a Delta, is that concern valid in your view? I, I think that Delta, and we're going to be uh, hearing from Doug Parker, American CEO, when we're down in Dallas on Thursday. I think both Delta and American will talk about 
remaining disciplined when it comes to capacity. Having said that, nobody wants to fall behind in any market. So when you see competitors become more aggressive, you have two choices. Do we fight back or do we pull back? And over the last seven years, United, for a variety of reasons, pulled back. Their seat growth in some of their largest hubs dropped 8% while American and Delta raised their seat growth. And they looked back and said, well, what did we get by being more disciplined here? We ended up losing. So now we're going to get aggressive. And so I think that while Delta and American will try to be disciplined, don't be surprised if they have to start responding, at least initially, market by market. This sort of capacity expansion, does this usually precede pricing wars or more cuts to prices? Yes, usually. Yeah, you usually will see it precede price wars. Um, now, they've got the benefit of a strong economy right now. Um, and there's a lot of demand out there. So they, they don't have to get super aggressive on the pricing. But, you know, this is it, it's not magic here. There's only so many seats usually in a particular market before you're going to have to cut those prices. And that's the question I think investors are worried about. That's why the stock's moving lower. Yeah. Does this spark a price war, a capacity war? And it's, this is an industry that has a terrible track record when it comes to that. That's right. All right, Phil, thank you. you uh, Phil LeBeau, uh, United Shares down about 6% right now. And I feel like it's, it's, it's a boom-bust cycle when we're talking about the airlines. Uh, we finally get over those worries, and then they c enter the market again, and investors get spooked. But this is exactly what these guys did back in July. And by the way, they, they posted a first-quarter update January 9th, and it was very positive. But when they pointed out that they were doing an investor day-like event tonight instead of an earnings call, a lot of people said, you know what, they're going to give us a little more that day, and it might not be great. Our friend Hunter K. nailed this. And again, he was the one that said it could be really noisy and that they're going to try to, it's really his words, clear the deck for 2019. 80 bucks on this stock, too. Look, you're right back at the highs. It's almost as if it was planned. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I, I, I know they have a terrible history of not being disciplined, but just take a step back and understand what's going on is that they see demand. They're, right? They're not going to expand capacity if they don't think that there's demand there. So people want to buy their product. I think you take a beat, you wait maybe a day or two, see how this trades. But this could be the turnaround or, or a story for 2019. This could be kind of that kitchen sink idea. What's your take? Well, I'm long Delta, yeah. American, and United uh, in that order. I hate to see this because, you know, Phil sort of addressed it. Do they try to be disciplined or do they feel like they have to, you know, jump in and do yeah. the same? I don't love that. I do want to dig down and see where that capacity is because we are seeing improvements in uh, some Atlantic market, Latin America. Some of it's international. And yeah, some of it's international. Those could be that. That could be not bad. Yeah, that could be high margin business. So uh, but I don't I don't love that. I mean, that three years of it. I don't love that. Stocks moved 40 percent off the lows. Let's be clear also. I mean, I, I think the, the airlines have been great trading stocks. They've given you opportunities here. And by the way, sentiment erodes very quickly. So is this I don't a dip think that you, you dip in? No. Okay. No, you don't need to. But I, I'm not selling. I own United and, and Delta. And I'm not selling on this news. All right. Still ahead. This stock is at an all-time high, but Tim Seymour says it is the perfect time to buy. He will tell you the name and explain why he's so excited. I'm Melissa Lee, and you're watching Fast Money and CNBC First and Business Worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. We bring good things to live in. We bring good things to life. Not of late, as GE shares continue to slide. And there's something to suggest it could get a lot worse tomorrow. We'll explain. Plus, Bitcoin is crashing. Bitcoin is surging. Bitcoin is crashing. I'm confused. Don't be. 
because resident crypto baller Brian Kelly says investors are ignoring the biggest rule about buying Bitcoin. And he'll tell us what that is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin bouncing today, but still on pace for its third straight week of losses. That's the longest such streak since September. And since then, the cryptocurrency has been stuck basically in Bitcoin purgatory. It's a place of lower highs and false hopes and mindless tweets of the Coinbase platform with silly arrows drawn. It's a tough place to be, wow. but unfortunately, it's where many crypto investors find themselves of late. Now, Bitcoin has been mostly trading between 10,000 and just above 11,000, and it hasn't been able to break out. Plus, even with today's rally, the cryptocurrency is still down about 45% from the highs it made in December, when it was just a stone's throw away from hitting 20,000. So could this be a sign that Bitcoin fever is fading. Hmm. That was some Kelly. dramatic music, that too, Brian. That was very yeah. dramatic. Did that have no, you? No, absolutely not. No. So, so here's, 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 from my perspective, here's what's going on. You've had a lot of fear, a lot okay. of FUD, is what the kids call it, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, about what's going on with the regulatory environment in Asia. So you've seen Korea crack down on some of the exchanges or at least start to regulate them. China is effectively... Uh, <laughs> it's great. Not it's, laughing at you, Brian. No, that's it's, fine. You know. uh, China is effectively done in banning Bitcoin. But the key to remember here is that there's a handoff going from the retail Asian investor to the U.S., European, and Japanese institutional investor. And that money is still coming in. That money has not stopped. So, you know, when we talk about Bitcoin up at 20000 everybody's all excited, running around how great it is. Those are the times to be a little cautious. Now when everybody's saying, oh, my God, it's over, that's it, Bitcoin's dead for the 175th time, now's the time you start looking at it on the buy side. What, what makes you think that this handoff is actually occurring? We can't track flows. We don't really know who's, you know, if, who's If you in were it, in not. my office with the phone and hearing the phone ring uh -huh. off the hook, you would know that the, that the Dude, flows have not me. stopped. That's just me. Oh, <laughs> you, yeah. Really? I just want to know why it's going down every day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You hung up a few times yeah, on me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but ultimately, Brian, isn't this, couldn't this be a very healthy consolidation, the fact that actually we're settling in around a level and, yes. and, and you've had people that could have sold it down a lot further that are hanging in? Yeah, you, 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 this is incredibly healthy for the ecosystem, in my view. You shake out the weak hands, you get strong hands in there. This is not the end of Bitcoin. I, I'm actually really happy this happened because when it starts going up 10, 20 percent and it's up at 20,000, people get excited and they start buying the highs. They don't understand this is an extremely volatile asset as we We've seen. So I think this at least, you know, sometimes it's painful, but it shows you it is extremely volatile. So if the crypto fever is not fading, what are some of the golden rules crypto traders should follow? BK will head over to the plaza to break down the essentials of the crypto traders rule. Book. Yeah, let's let's do it. Why wouldn't we? So Dramatic. the crypto rules aren't too different than uh, some of the other trading rules, but there really are kind of three big things that you should keep in mind when you're trading crypto. First of all, remember, this is an extremely, it's a new technology. Things break. This is the internet in 1995. So you only want to risk 1% to 5% of your investable assets on this. And the reason why I say that is, if this thing is, this is really going to be the next internet, then you're looking at, you know, a 10, 20x from here, and your 1% to 5% of your assets is going to grow exponentially. Let's just say it doesn't work. Let's all hope not. Mrs. BK certainly hopes it doesn't, not anymore. But if that's the case, then 5% of your assets are gone and you lost it. So it hurts, but it's not life-changing. So that's number one. Number two, don't sell too soon. So if something's up 20 or 30%, you want to hold on to that. It's what the crypto kids call hodling, H-O-D-L. 
and that comes from a misspelling a long time ago. But the hardest thing I had to learn about this market trading for going from global macro to this is once things start moving, once there's momentum, you hold on to this thing, okay? And then the last thing, do not panic when things come down. Understand that you're in an incredibly volatile market. These things can move 20, 30% in a day. This is what, if you sell on the lows, that's what the crypto kids call getting wrecked. R-E-K-T. Don't get wrecked. When you want to puke on your shoes in the morning, you buy. Those are your three rules. <laughs> and great spelling. Um, so <laughs> let me ask you, when you talk about crypto, where do you, how do you differentiate or do you differentiate between Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole myriad of them. Really what I look at is the foundational currencies to start. Bitcoin, Ripple, Stellar being your kind of payment uh, systems and Bitcoin Cash in there as well. And then your uh, platform, so Ethereum, uh, EOS, uh, EOS, a couple of those others that you can build smart contracts on top of. So I separate into those two and those are the kind of the core of my portfolio. Hey, Beeks, you know, so you just mentioned platforms and you also talk about how this is like Internet 1995. So to me, you know, is it more betting on the platforms? Is it Ethereum, which is like blockchain as a service? Is that where investors, not people who are trading, should be looking? I, I think if you want to, if you want to invest, here, here's the thing that I say about Ethereum, and it's starting to happen with Bitcoin. There is a smart contract second layer coming called Rootstock RSK. Uh, but with Ethereum, there's so many people building on that. There are thousands of the smartest minds around the world, and I don't know what's going to be built. But I do know when you put that many smart people together, somebody builds something incredible. So if you just want to kind of close your eyes and say, how do I get into this space? If, uh, you know, Ethereum is probably the way to go. All right. Thanks for that, Beeks. Very yep. educational. Still ahead, GE's moment of truth, the stock going from worst to worst this year, sitting near multi-year lows and with earnings out tomorrow. Are there any signs of a bottom? There was one very large and troublesome trade today. We'll tell you what that's all about. Plus, as more and more stocks search to record highs, how do you know when and where to put fresh money to work? Tim Seymour's got a few simple steps. We'll break it all down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. I am Ilan Mui in Washington, where Jay Powell has secured enough votes to be confirmed as the next chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, that vote is still ongoing, but so far he has 81 senators supporting his nomination. About a dozen are opposing it. All he needs is a, is a simple majority of 51, and he will then be confirmed as Fed chair once that gavel comes down. Now, this vote does come with a little time to spare with Fed chair Janet Yellen expected to step down on February 3rd. Earlier today, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that Jay Powell is a steady voice at the Fed and that he will be a thoughtful leader. And now he appears to have enough votes to be confirmed as the next Federal Reserve chair with support coming from both Republicans and Democrats. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. All right, Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in D.C. So stability at the Fed for uh, all intents right. and purposes here. Yeah, not shocking, of course, that this happened. But, uh, you know, if I were to be careful what you wish for, this could be a <laughs> bumpy road for the Fed coming up. I do think there's a very real chance of an inflation spike. And what are they going to do about that? Big questions there. All right, switching gears here uh, to General Electric. GE uh, jumping about 4% ahead of its earnings before the bell tomorrow. But despite the move higher, the Dow's oldest stock has gone from worst 
to worst. GE is sinking more than 45 percent in 2017, making it the worst performing stock in the Dow. And just this year, GE falling more than 3 percent, losing $6 billion in market cap. Now the second worst performing Dow stock. So GE gears up for its moment of truth. Let's get to Morgan Brennan back at headquarters for what investors are looking for in tomorrow's report. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Melissa. Well, in General Electric reports before the opening bell tomorrow, expect the results to be messy. Last week, the struggling blue chip warned that for Q4, it would take a $6.2 billion charge tied to its legacy insurance business and a $3.4 billion charge related to tax reform. Earnings for, for full year 2017, those are likely to come in at the low range of $1.05 to $1.10, according to its latest updated guidance last week. But the street will be most interested in what's coming next. Current guidance for 2018 is $1 to $1.07 for earnings and 6 to $7 billion in cash flow. But Bank of America, which downgraded the stock yesterday, thinks that outlook could be lowered if the pain in power has worsened. The conference call will be the big focus as the street looks for more commentary regarding a potential breakup of GE's core industrial businesses, especially since a number of analysts argue that the sum of the parts valuation doesn't necessarily support a full breakup. Investors will be looking for updates on the planned $20 billion in other divestitures as well, including transportation and lighting, and whether GE will exit its majority stake in Baker Hughes when that lockup expires next year. Also, any updates on the board that is shrinking to 12 directors from 18 with three spots uh, expected to be filled. So ahead of the results, stock closed today up almost 4% after breaking below $16 yesterday uh, to hit a multi-year low. And Melissa, this is after this was the best performing Dow component to start the year. So we've seen a lot of volatility here. Back yep. over to you. All right, Morgan. Thank you, Morgan. Brennan, a headquarters. So Tim, as a holder, what are you looking for? Well, I, I think I want to look at the free cash flow number. I think the 2017 free cash flow number is probably, you know, 4.2, 4.5, somewhere in there. And as Morgan pointed out, people are really focused laser on free cash flow for 2018 because of the insurance reserves that they have to put against GE Capital, um, which I agree, they, they can't break up this company because of GE Capital. And I think there's a lot of uh, crossover between the reserves that are promised from one business to another. Um, I think the industrial will earn 25 cents. I think GE Capital earned two or three. Um, and I think people are not expecting anything. I think the, the comps actually could get a little bit worse in, in power. And I think that's something people should be concerned about. I think they're going to talk about you know, maybe 5% down in terms of where they're going to be on their power business. So uh, I, think they, I, I think the move in the stock over the last week, which has been related to breaking up the company, um, is, is fair, except for I don't think they're going to break up the company. All right. So even if they're not going to break up the company, is there any hope here? I mean, <laughs> no, not for me anymore. I've tried a bunch of times, even like it was like a week or so ago. I thought maybe this is the bottom here and I gave it another shot. And, you know, I, I they must have a whole slew of kitchen sinks because they keep throwing them out. And uh, eventually they're going to get it. Eventually they're just going to write everything off. But BK is done with GE for a while. I mean, in the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch downgrade that Morgan had cited, the analyst points out that in November and then in January, again, the company cut its guidance. This analyst believes they're going to cut 2018 guidance when they report tomorrow. I mean, it's just how many times can you do that to an investor base which has already been burned? I mean, this, these, I are, know, just, BK6 these are months, yeah. these are exactly. months apart yes. in terms of it's, the dis disappointments. Yes. It's a funny market. I mean, when you think about it, this is a, what, a hundred and something year old company that has tremendous assets, obviously a very complicated business to value. But we're looking at like a Netflix that just told us last year that they had losses of $2 billion on their spending and it gained $10 billion in the aftermarket. And this stock is trading near 10, 15 year lows or something like that. You know, it's just it's interesting what investors are willing to give the benefit of the doubt for um, at the end of the day. So to me, I, I, I don't know. And I know that a lot of the some of the parts, some people have it down in the 
low teens. Uh, yeah, right? Cowan had an yeah. analysis back in November for that. I don't know what it stands at now, but it was 11 to 15 back in November. Right. In, but, any but, interest but by the way, I'm not. I mean, yeah. that, that's a very smart guy and a very good call. But I'm not sure it's relevant. Because if you're not breaking up the company, and this is a company that also has, uh, I think, a lot of intrinsic value in some of these assets, it, some of the parts is useful, but, you know, we don't do some of the parts when it's in somebody's favor either. So, uh, you know, I, I could push back on that. Any interest? I mean, maybe I would look at it sort of in Dan's world, like a, a calendar, something way out, maybe sell something near in. There is a lot of leverage. If it works, it could really work. Or you could see it down dramatically. Yeah, well, speaking of options, uh, oh. options oh. traders are betting on more pain for GE, actually. Dan, what Yeah, so today was a really interesting day in the options market in GE. Obviously, there's been a lot of news over the course of the month. The stock's been very volatile. The options market is implying about a 5% move in either direction um, tomorrow. And that is pretty rich. So the 10-year average one-day move, it's been about 3%. It's been about two and a quarter over the last four quarters. The most active uh, options today were the January 26th, this Friday, weekly exit. Expiration 16 puts 42,500 traded at an average about 15 and a half cents. When I look at that, a bunch of those were opening, about 20,000 of them. It could be a long holder looking for some protection, um, you know, very near term, just on the event. Um, you know, that would those puts would break even down at 15.85. That's a down about six percent, a little more than uh, the implied move. All right. For more options action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, the crypto craze rages on, and one fund manager on Wall Street is betting big on Bitcoin. He'll join us next to explain why he's so bullish in the face of all this selling. Plus, just today, 70 stocks, 70 stocks hit a record. So when is it safe to buy at all-time highs? Our Tim Seymour will break that down, tell us the one name at record highs he sees soaring to new heights. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks are on fire. According to facts that around 35% of stocks in the S&P 500 have hit record highs so far this year. Dom Chu's in the newsroom to break it all down. Hey, Dom. Well, I mean, Melissa, it pretty much sounds like a broken record, right? Record high, record high, record high. It's because we've hit that many record highs just so far in 2018. Now, today marked the 12th record intraday high out of just the first 15 trading days of the year. And if you needed any more market superlatives, how's this for you? According to LPL financial market strategist Ryan Dietrich, today will mark the 396th day in a row that the S&P has closed within 5% of a record high. That broke yesterday's record streak, which broke the record of 394 days going all the way back to the mid-1990s. Now, around 70 members of the S&P hit record intraday levels today, including some of the biggest market value companies out there. We're talking Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Microsoft as well, and Amazon too. Now, if Apple and Facebook, they're right now without about a percent away from their own record levels, if they can hit those, it would mean that the five biggest weightings in the S&P could hit simultaneous all-time highs. Melissa, the worry now is with all of these stock superlatives, how deep could any potential pullback be? So who's forgotten what a pullback actually looks like or what it feels like? Back over to you guys. All right. Thank you very much, Dom. So how do you know when it's okay to buy at a record high? I mean, I think most people feel like chumps if they say, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy this stock and it's sitting <laughs> well, at a record high. Yes, that, that, I understand that feeling. I've felt chumpish myself many, many times. But if you step back over the history of the market, it's always been okay to buy at a record high because here we are. 
at right? another record high. At another record high. So, you know, if you step back and take that perspective, then it gets a little bit easier. And I also always say going home long is the same as buying it on the close, right? So I bought JP Morgan today, essentially. Because you owned it already. It. I, at a record alphabet high. And, right. And there so, you, uh, you know, I, I, I could live with it. I might end up being a chump, but I right. still want to own them right here. It's the same as buying them on the close. Good use of chump, by the way. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's, I think it's an underutilized word. Yeah, I and I felt like in the context of the conversation, for sure. it was very appropriate. But, I mean, it's not just price. Obviously, you want to see other metrics in, in growth, I would right, suspect. Right, right. You want, I mean, you, you, again, you want to see some kind of catalyst out there. And, you know, to me, if I'm buying record highs, I generally want to buy the first couple record highs, right? So, you know, first day of a record high, maybe I don't buy. But then I'm going to be buying the second and third record high on that because now potentially some, the market's telling me something. Has changed. If I can couple that with a catalyst, something that's different about either the company or the market, then I know I've got something really nice. All right. Well, if you are wondering how to know when it's safe to buy at all time highs, fear not, Tim Seymour is going to head over to the plasma, break it all down for the more you know. Tim. Yes, the more you know, Mel. And so part of this is this is truly an educational as, a, as an investor. What do you do uh, when you're buying a record highs? First of all, to get comfort, I need to know that the fundamentals um, have have actually changed, that there's been a re-rating. We've obviously had a tax deal. There's a lot of companies. But something has to have changed, not just because the market is higher. What's going on in their core business? Two, is there a transformational event? Sometimes it can be earnings. Sometimes it could be a merger. Sometimes it could be paying down a big uh, slug of debt. So it's a balance sheet event. And then ultimately, there needs to be a momentum shift. So in many cases, sometimes stocks are just unloved. Look what happened in the retail sector. Look what happened with the airlines. Sometimes you need to see a momentum shift. And I think that's ultimately what we are setting up for the company that I'd like to talk about buying an all-time so Alibaba, first of all, fundamentals have changed. Some of the parts, whatever you want to do, GMV, the revenue is growing on this company, too. Um, there is a catalyst. First of all, February 5th, you've got December quarter events, and I think they're going to be fantastic numbers. I think the street is upgrading. And finally, you've got an ascending triangle here. This means a horizontal line here and higher lows all the way up creates a right angle. Today's breakout was magic. This stock's going higher at all-time highs. What do you think of uh, Tim's pick? I, I like it, uh, but there, there's a really important difference yes. between what we just saw on Netflix the other day that was up 15%, making new all-time highs for 10 consecutive days, and what he's talking about with Alibaba here. This stock has been consolidating in this period. He's identified a catalyst. He's convicted. Those are the ingredients that get me interested in a stock for playing for a new all-time highs, not the, sit the setup like Netflix. So I like this a one. Buy, yeah. yeah. How about Yeah, buy. I mean, this is exactly what I was just talking about. You buy the first or the second all-time high. Yeah. So we broke out today, all-time high. I want to buy tomorrow. And particularly now I can couple it with the catalyst that Tim was talking about at the buy. Karen? Yeah, I mean, for me, a buy also. Normally I would look and say, all right, it's somewhat expensive, but it's a great business. And if you own EEM, which I do, it's the fourth largest holding there, so I'm long it. Already. That's my book. Long already. Bye. Clean sweep, Tim. Still ahead, move over Bitcoin. What is the next big coin ready to hit the market? We'll be joined by a crypto fund manager, but what he's calling the next big thing. More Fast Money right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. At an ETF conference, the biggest topic is Bitcoin, naturally. Bob Pisani is at the Inside ETFs conference in Hollywood, Florida, with a special guest. Hey, Bob. Hunter Horsley uh, runs Bitwise Asset Management, which has a cryptocurrency index fund. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But uh, first, Hunter, uh, you and Jan Von Eck went round and round this morning on the Bitcoin ETF. The SEC, in their letter last week, essentially has thrown out so much 
questions about yeah. a Bitcoin ETF that the answer for the moment seems no. Yeah. Is there a way to address their concerns? Yeah, so, so the SEC came out with some comments last week. There are 30 questions or so, and they shared the things that are important to them. Valuation, liquidity, custody, the probability of, of manipulation. Uh, I think what it means is that they're being thoughtful and they're, they're not going to... They're going to be patient in trying to evaluate That's this That's a political answer, and I appreciate it. But how, can the industry address yeah. the concerns? We've been talking about the liquidity and the custody. Yeah. Concern. Is it impossible? Yeah. They, they seem to be saying right now, no, folks, it's I, not happening. I think, it, I think it's definitely possible. So liquidity is, trade volumes are way up in 2017. I think daily trade volumes for Bitcoin today are something on the order of $10 billion. Um, custody is being worked on by a number of organizations, some traditional institutions, as well as new technology companies that are seeking to solve this. Price can be indexed. So I, I think that these things are addressable in time. We just need to make sure that they're solved in a trustworthy way so that when a, a vehicle is available to the public, um, it's rock solid. Let me just try to turn this upside down. Sure. So wh why do we need Bitcoin ETFs so much? So how many, how many people own yeah. Coinbase accounts right yeah. now? 10 million? Yeah, so, yeah so I think it's 13, 13 million, I think, is the last public number. Okay, suppose that Fidelity would towards yeah. to announce, we, well, you can set up a yeah. Bitcoin account. Why do we particularly, yeah. why are we all stressed yeah, so, out about so, ETFs? So I think that that's a really interesting point. So a lot of, a lot of the motivation behind the ETFs is to provide broader access. But in the meantime, um, brokerages, services like Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, and others have provided direct access to the market uh, and the ability to buy the asset directly. And so if it, if it takes long enough, people may find their way to, to buy the asset directly. Maybe that's directly. the way to deal with this. Well, let me just, before you go, uh, yeah. your cryptocurrency index yeah. fund, you only accredited investors. It's limited There's to accredited 10, investors. 10 cryptocurrencies. That's How does right. It, work? it holds the top 10 crypto assets that represent 85 to 90% of the market by market cap. Last year, we saw Bitcoin go from 85% of the market down to 35% of the market. And today, if you want exposure to the asset class, Bitcoin is a very specific bet to make. It's no longer uh, the general thing that it used to be. And so the index gives investors a way to get broad market exposure. Hunter, good to talk to you. Please come back again. Let us know yeah. thoughts in the future. And if you think the SEC is going to do something, we want to hear about it, of course. Absolutely. Melissa, good to see you again. Thank you. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Thank you, Hunter Horsley, as well. BK, just quickly, what are your thoughts about how quickly an ETF could hit the market? Oh, a Bitcoin, I think, I think we're a long way off. I, I agree with yeah. Hunter. I think we're a, a ways off on that. All right. Up yeah. next, final trades. Final trade time, Tim. Buy the ascending triangle, buy Alibaba. Karen. Yes. Golar MLP. This is the master limited partnership that goes with GLNG. I like them both. Long right here, new FSRU contract. Brian Kelly. Uh, payments are changing square at the epicenter of that SQ. You buy it. Anything. Wow, you know, so this Texas Instruments, this gap and crap as we call it in the business, uh, I think you got to take a look at the SMH here. I think we see uh, some weakness in the next few days. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 o'clock for more Fast Money. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.